The next portion of God's word that we're considering in our First Corinthians sermon series is a three-chapter unit, 12, 13, 14, which address the ninth of ten problems the Apostle Paul is confronting in the church, desiring and using spiritual gifts and their relation to love, which is the most excellent way, not a gift, for the Christian. Famously, infamously, some in the Corinthian church were placing a premium on the very flashy gift of tongues. And speaking in tongues, as it's used in 1 Corinthians, refers to an individual's praising God in a language that neither the speaker nor the hearers understand unless God supernaturally enables someone to interpret. And those in the church not blessed with this God-given gift were deemed by some of their brothers and sisters to be less important. Can you imagine? And to define our terms at the outset, a spiritual gift or a grace gift, uh, charisma in the singular, charismata in the plural, is not a technical one for Paul that refers only to a select set of gifts that transcend the normal like healing and prophecy. Uh, It embraces gifts like encouragement, and generous giving, but it's also used repeatedly for the gift of salvation itself, not to mention the gift of celibacy and the gift of marriage. But in the church in Corinth, not only were certain grace gifts and thus certain people looked down upon, but the gifts the Holy Spirit had given to the assembly to facilitate public worship and to edify one another, were being used in a disorderly, chaotic manner in a way that did not build up, did not edify the body of believers. Look with me for a moment at a few texts in chapter 14. This is on page 1152. Chapter 14, verse 12, Paul writes, Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So the gift of prophecy, for instance, which is, a, which is spirit-prompted utterance. Paul argues that people can spiritually benefit from hearing prophecy during a corporate worship service because it's intelligible, as opposed to someone praising God in an uninterpreted tongue, which is not intelligible and so does not build up, does not edify the church. Chapter 14, verse 17, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified because no one understands a word you're saying. Paul also commands the church to use their spiritual gifts during corporate worship in an orderly fashion. 1423, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, Two, or at the most, three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So, what's the Apostle Paul's solution to this mess? The Apostle commands the Corinthians to pursue love which the gospel embodies by earnestly desiring and using spiritual gifts that build up the church. Now, that, that general overview of the situation in Corinth is relatively non-controversial. Uh, however, the elephant in the room, the central controversy among theologically conservative Christians regarding 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is this. Does God continue to give miraculous spiritual gifts such as tongues and prophecy to the church today? 
And there are two basic ways to answer that question. There are two camps. One camp believes, no, God has ceased to give miraculous spiritual gifts to the churches. Those spiritual gifts died out with the ministry of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament canon. This position is known as cessationism. The other camp believes, yes, God continues to give miraculous spiritual gifts to churches, and he will do so until the day Jesus returns in glory, 1 Corinthians 13.10. This position is known as continuationism. No one gets any points here for originality on what they're calling these two camps. Uh, and, And to lay my cards on the table... I suppose you might call me uh, an open but cautious continuationist, which is the theological position upsetting to all sides in the debate. Nobody likes people in the ocean, uh, in the uh, open but cautious camp. People want black or they want white. They want yes or no. They want John MacArthur or Benny Hinn. (laughs) And many would say in criticism that the open but cautious position basically means, sure, John, you, you may not be theologically cessationist, but you're functionally cessationist. Or, no, sorry, you're functionally, yeah, functionally cessationist. Oh, open but cautious really means you're barely open and, and highly suspicious. And yes, I'll admit that much of what passes for legitimate charismatic gifts of the spirit on display in pentecostal charismatic and third wave churches today does tend to make me highly suspicious and frankly a great deal of it repulses me for example teaching that a person must speak in tongues to be a christian or teaching that a christian must speak in tongues to be spirit baptized or spirit filled or a spiritual Christian. Disobeying Paul's instructions in chapter 14, verses 26 through 40, about orderly worship. For example, acting in disorderly and bizarre ways, such as inviting everyone to pray in tongues simultaneously. Or, teaching that it's God's will for all Christians to prosper by being healthy and wealthy and then appealing to Christians to give money generously so that God will give them more money in return. And since that sort of false doctrine and foolish behavior characterizes many, if not most, continuationists in the world today, it's understandable that theologically conservative conservative evangelicals want nothing to do with continuationism. But the final arbitrator, of course, is what does the word of God say on this topic? What does the New Testament actually teach? So, while I disagree with John MacArthur's exegetical and theological arguments for cessationism, I heartily agree with his concern that the broader charismatic movement contains both false teaching and disorderly, bizarre practices. And yes, New City, I think we all should be open, but cautious, but also content and discerning. Christians should be content with what the Spirit sovereignly determines to distribute, since all spiritual gifts, chapter 12, verse 11, are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The Bible doesn't say that all healthy churches must use all of the miraculous spiritual gifts. Rather, all healthy churches contentedly use the gifts the Holy Spirit wisely distributes to them. But we must also be discerning. It's wrong to forbid miraculous spiritual gifts. What does Paul say in 1439? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, there is a verse to be reckoned with. However, it's unwise to blindly accept every alleged manifestation of a gift as genuine. That would be the short route to chaos. The church must be discerning. 
So let me explain my approach to this. Three weeks, three chapters, three sermons. And we'll consider the big picture theme of each chapter, and each theme will be the title of that week's sermon. Simplify, simplify, simplify. So chapter 12, our sermon today, the mutual dependence of believers on one another. Chapter 13, the most excellent way of Christian love. Chapter 14, intelligibility and orderliness in corporate worship. And of course, those themes apply just as much to us today as they did to first century Corinth, even though New City isn't a quote-unquote charismatic church in in the modern-day usage of that word. It's probably theologically not the best word to use, but I'm going to keep using it because that's how we speak of this today. But it still leaves us with the $64,000 question, what are we supposed to think about manifestations of so-called charismatic spiritual gifts in corporate worship today? For that, I need to do a series of Sunday school classes, probably four or five in all, and that's my plan, and hopefully we'll start in the early spring. But before we come to that Sunday school series, we need to thoroughly, thoroughly understand 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in their context. And the first point the Apostle Paul addresses is this. Number one, you can see this in your bulletin. Participation in the things of the Holy Spirit is attested by all who truly confess Jesus as Lord. Now, often, casual readers who come to chapter 12 only to learn about spiritual gifts, they're tempted to skip over these difficult opening verses. But these verses are crucial for understanding Paul's intention for the next three chapters. It contains his thesis statement, everything starts Here, it flows from here. In his three-verse introduction, the apostle contrasts the Corinthians' pagan past with their spiritually transformed present as Christians. And he affirms that to be able to confess the Jesus of the incarnation, the Jesus of the cross, the Jesus of the resurrection, to be able to confess that Jesus as truly Lord especially in the face of a society that has lords aplenty, that already attests to the powerful, transforming work of God the Holy Spirit. So this affirmation heads off at the pass any divisive claim that some Christians are more spiritual than other Christians because they show evidence of having the more electrifying and exciting spiritual gifts. No, no, no. Right out of the gate, Paul states that participation in the things of the Spirit is attested by all who truly confess Jesus is Lord. So look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, or the question of spirituals, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, because they are uninformed. They're laboring under this unbiblical two-tier model of Christianity. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, some would argue that Paul's attempting in these verses to provide the church with a a quick and, and rough criterion, a test to distinguish between true and false spiritual gifts, the gift of tongues and prophecy in particular. So what's true prophecy? What's, what's false prophecy? What's true tongues? What's false tongues? Here's the test, some would argue. If someone in the church prophesies Jesus is Lord, then that's the true gift at work. But if they proclaim Jesus is cursed, that's the false gift at work. That person is being led away by demons. I would argue vehemently that Paul is not setting up any such test. Anyway, that that criterion is so broad. It's so undiscriminating. And and it's it's a line of interpretation, really, that sets us off on the wrong trajectory immediately. It colors how we look at the next three chapters. It's wrong. Uh, Paul nowhere addresses demon-inspired prophetic 
utterances in the next three chapters. Order, edification, intelligibility, yes, certainly. But not false spiritual gifts. It's nowhere to be found. No, Paul's point here is to establish from the outset that all Christians are spiritual. He's making a contrast between the time when the Corinthians were pagan and led astray to mute idols, which symbolizes their former ignorance, and now when they confess that Jesus is Lord by the revelation of the Spirit. That makes perfect contextual sense. This chapter is all about the allotment of spiritual gifts given to individual Christians by the Spirit for the common good. So Paul begins by making clear that all who make the saving confession, Jesus is Lord, are led to do so by the Spirit and therefore qualify as spiritual. What are we to make of this foul curse in verse 3? Were people in the church saying Jesus is cursed while speaking in tongues or prophesying during corporate worship? No. Paul's point is simply to draw a sharp contrast between what those who have the Holy Spirit, i.e. Christians, say about Jesus and what those who do not have the Holy Spirit say about Jesus. His concern is simply to establish an essentially Christological focus to the questions of who qualifies as spiritual. That is, who has the Holy Spirit at all? No one can, no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because that confession isn't some spontaneous, ecstatic utterance that just anyone can blurt out. It affirms, it affirms the majesty of Jesus as the one raised from the dead to become the one universal Lord above all other so-called Lords. Chapter 8, verse 6. It declares absolute allegiance to Jesus and accepts his absolute authority over every aspect of life. As Hayes puts it, anyone who utters this confession, not just mouthing the words, but making a self-involving confession of the lordship of Jesus, is ipso facto, by that very fact, living in the sphere of the Holy Spirit's power. Which means this statement anticipates the theme of chapter 12, verses 12 to 13, where Paul writes, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. See, the first three verses anticipate that theme, the whole theme of the chapter. Simply put, it's as we sing at New City some weeks, what you think of Christ is the test. Participation in the things of the Holy Spirit is attested by all who truly confess Jesus is Lord, not the flashiness or power of any one spiritual gift. However, there are distinctions in the gifts the Spirit sovereignly distributes, which takes us to our second point. That first point was the hardest of the whole morning. It's all, it's all past. Point number two, the bountiful diversity of the grace gifts. Verses 4 through 11. Brothers and sisters, the triune God we serve loves diversity. So much so that when he sends a snowstorm, he makes each flake different. Right? We, what do we, we manufacture ice cubes. Dictators seek to establish their brand of harmony by forcefully imposing monotonous sameness, right? Everyone wears the same outfit. But God establishes his brand of harmony by a lavish grant of highly diverse gifts, each contributing to the body as a whole. Note the Trinitarian formula, verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God, God the Father, at work. And service here and working are basically synonymous in this context. They refer to spiritual gifts. So Paul's saying the triune God, the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord Jesus and God the Father, he empowers the gifts in each Christian. There are diverse spiritual gifts, but they all have the same source. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And this verse is very important. This is a transitional verse. It glances back to the preceding verses by embracing gifts, service, working, under the one expression, the manifestation of the Spirit. Right? That means spiritual gifts manifest the Spirit. They show the Spirit. But verse 7 also makes two new points. First, each believer Every believer is given some manifestation of the Spirit. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Second, these gifts are not for personal aggrandizement. They're not for enhancing one's own uh, importance. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, some Christians want to rule out the legitimacy of any private use of tongues based on this text we're going to get to tongues and prophecy big time in chapter 14 i'm setting things up i do believe in a private use of tongues i believe in a corporate use of tongues all right but private use of tongues is ruled at a court based by by some people based on this verse how can it be for the common good if the gift of tongues is used privately well clearly there is no direct benefit only god hears what's being said but wasn't Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10, granted extraordinary visions and revelations that were designed only for his immediate benefit? Yet surely the church received indirect profit from those revelations and visions as far as these revelations, not to mention the ensuing thorn in the flesh, better equipped the apostle for proclamation and ministry. It kept him humble. In the same way, I don't see how verse 7 renders illegitimate a private use of tongues if the result is a better person a more spiritually minded christian the church may then receive indirect benefit from that gifting carson notes this this is very important verse 7 rules out using a spiritual gift for personal aggrandizement or merely for self-satisfaction it does not rule out all benefit for the individual just as marriage one of the charismata, according to 1 Corinthians 7.7, may benefit the individual, providing that the resulting matrix is for the common good. So we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 14. But think about that. I mean, I think that's good food for thought. I'm anticipating objections as we go along, right? Paul then lists nine examples of the gifts the Spirit may distribute to individuals in a local church. And following Nacelli, seven aspects of this list are noteworthy. Number one, it's not exhaustive. Other New Testament lists of spiritual gifts differ from this list. If you look at the bottom of your bulletin, bottom of your handout, the New Testament epistles list specific grace gifts, charismata, in six different passages. Note the mixture of natural and supernatural. But combining... All the gifts in these lists wouldn't result in a fully comprehensive list. Musical ability, for instance, is never mentioned. But I would argue that's a gifting. That's a ministry the Lord has given to certain people for the common good of this church. No, the New Testament lists of spiritual gifts are representative. Number two, the gifts do not occur in exactly the same order as in other New Testament lists. You can just consult that at the bottom of your bulletin. That implies they do not occur in the order of most to least important. We'll return to that important point in verse 28. Number three, some Christians do not receive some of these gifts. Paul states this as explicitly as possible in in chapter 12, verses 29 through 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No, the Spirit sovereignly distributes the gifts to individuals as he sees fit. Therefore, it's sinful to insist that all Christians or all mature Christians or whatever adjective one uses to create a second tier of believers must 
experience a particular gift, such as tongues. Number four, ability does not equal maturity. Possessing a spiritual gift does not mean that one is spiritually mature. In fact, Paul opens this letter by thanking God that the Corinthians are not lacking in, in any gift. Chapter 1, verse 7. Not lacking in any gift. And then proceeds to correct them on issue after issue for acting immaturely. He calls them milk-drinking babies. And yet, they are not lacking in any gift. Number five. For the first four gifts, Paul repeats that the Spirit is the one who empowers the gift. He does this to emphasize the fact, similar to how we might use bold-faced, italicized, or underlined text today. The Spirit is the one who empowers the gifts. Number six, Paul saves prophecy and tongues for last, probably because they are the two primary gifts he addresses in chapters 12 through 14. Uh, He lists tongues last, not because it's least valuable, but because some of the Corinthians are divisively claiming that speaking in tongues is more important than other gifts. Number seven, Paul does not precisely define each gift, which is not his point here anyway. He mentions these nine gifts to emphasize that the Spirit distributes diverse gifts. Paul does not precisely define each gift, so we can only guess what some of them are. Look at verse eight. To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. And the difference between the message of wisdom and a message of knowledge is difficult to distinguish. It's also unclear whether these messages are extraordinary or relatively common. What I mean is, is this ability, the spiritual gifting, to give wise and knowledgeable advice in specific situations? It it could very well be. However, if these two gifts are more on the extraordinary, supernatural, charismatic side of the spectrum, then it it wouldn't always be possible to distinguish a prophecy from a message of wisdom, from a message of knowledge. Possibly those who are endowed with these gifts enjoyed a special experience of the Spirit in which a message came to them, and that they then transmitted to the congregation, but it's not clear that the content of such messages was invariably what could not have been known any other way. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. And the grace gift of faith, of course, doesn't refer to saving faith, but to a type of faith that only some Christians have, probably an extraordinary faith, the mountain-moving faith we read of in in, uh, chapter 13, verse Two, such faith seems to be a miraculous ability to trust God in a specific situation for something God does not explicitly promise in the Bible. One thinks, for instance, of George Mueller of Bristol. 9b, to another, gifts of literally healings by that one spirit. And Paul would understand these healings to be as miraculous as those of the Lord Jesus himself. And we should note the plurals. That strongly suggests there were different gifts of healings. Not everyone was getting healed by one person. Perhaps certain persons with one of these gifts of healings could, by the Lord's grace, heal certain diseases, or they could heal a variety of diseases, but only at certain times. The word he uses here is gifts of healings. Carson again, perhaps then one of the things that our own generation needs to avoid is the institutionalizing of gifts. If a Christian has been granted the gift to heal one particular individual of one particular disease at one time, that Christian should not presume to think that the gift of healing has been bestowed on him or her, prompting the founding of a healing ministry which we we see for shame. (laughs) In other words, this is not a permanent gift of healer by which a person can heal anybody of any sickness anytime he or she wants. Rather, this is a a specific gift the Spirit sovereignly distributes in specific situations. Gifts of healings. Verse 10, to another miraculous powers, literally workings of powers, 
The plurals, again, are noteworthy and probably signal the, the same sort of diversity as in the previous gift. Presumably, all healings are demonstrations of miraculous powers, but not all miraculous powers are healings. They may include exorcisms, uh, nature miracles, and other displays of divine power. 10b, to another, prophecy. And my plan is to deal with that grace gift when we come to chapter 14. Prophecy and tongues are what chapter 14 is all about and is a sermon unto itself. To another, distinguishing between spirits. Spectacular displays often attest the power of the spirit world, but do not in themselves attest the power of the Holy Spirit. There is ever a need to distinguish demonic forces from the Holy Spirit. And this gift apparently is designed to meet that need. The insight needed may be granted by some special endowment, or it may on occasion be the byproduct of profound doctrinal discernment as in 1 John 4, 1 to 6. I'll leave that to you to look up that text. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. And Again, all tongues-related topics I'm saving for chapter 14, along with prophecy. Okay, there we have it. The bountiful diversity of the grace gifts. What point is Paul making with that long list? Verse 11. All these gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. And this verse is so important to understand, you city, because although Paul will say in verse 31 that Christians are to eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I'll explain what that means over the next two sermons, yet here in verse 11, the apostle insists that in the final analysis, the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he sees fit, which means we have no right to any particular one gift. And we must ultimately trust the wisdom of our Heavenly Father, His gracious distribution through the Spirit. We have to trust that. Which leads us to application A. You can see this in your bulletin. Christian, be content with the spiritual gifts the Spirit distributes to you and to your fellow church members. So, for example, if God has not arranged for me as an individual or for any member of New City Baptist Church to speak in tongues, assuming we're obeying 1439, do not forbid speaking in tongues, then that's okay. It shouldn't grieve us as if it signaled that God were refusing to bless us or our church. Yes, it's appropriate to ask God to give us and our church more gifts, but we must be content with what God sovereignly and graciously bestows. All spiritual gifts are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The Bible doesn't say that all healthy churches must use all of the miraculous spiritual gifts. Rather, all healthy churches contentedly use the gifts the Holy Spirit wisely distributes to them. So, look around, new citizens, if you can peer through the dark back there. <laughs> These brothers and sisters with whom we are in membership covenant are the ones through whom God has sovereignly distributed His grace gifts for our edification, for our mutual edification. God doesn't just zap Christians with a sanctifying laser to build us up in the most holy faith. He uses means. And he's going to work through the grace gifts he sovereignly and wisely distributed to Johnny and Gloria and Alex and Sarah and Chris and Armando and Phil and Natalie to edify you. So be content. Don't be thinking, oh, boy, are we ever missing out down here at New City. We don't, why don't we have more people in our assembly with the gift of encouragement or the gift of generous giving or the gift of music? If we had a 10-piece orchestral band, then I could really get my worship on. Why aren't there more people at New City with the gift of celibacy so that I'm not just one of the few singles here? Why didn't God see fit to bless this church with prophets? 
No. Be content and trust the wisdom of God's gracious distribution. Of course, we all need to show up and use our grace gifts, serving one another in love. But Paul's main concern in these chapters is not what gifts God gives to the church, but how the church uses them. But our first point of application is this. Know the scriptures, Christian, and be content. God wisely gives each church precisely the gifts it needs. And now Paul goes on to explain verse 11 with his famous body analogy. Our third point this morning, the mutual dependence of believers on one another is also what our sermon is entitled. And this analogy extends all the way through to verse 26. So look at verse 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. That is, so it is with his body, the church. A local church is a single, whole body. And it has many members or parts. That is, the spirit has distributed different spiritual gifts to different individuals within that church. Verse 13, For we were all baptized by or in one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So the church in Corinth is composed of all sorts of people with all sorts of different spiritual gifts, but they share spirit baptism in common. And so do we. So do all Christians. Spirit baptism is Christ's judicially placing Christians in the Holy Spirit when God regenerates us, thus placing us into the body of Christ. And Paul teaches that all Christians are spirit baptized, which is why the New Testament never commands or exhorts Christians to pursue or to receive spirit baptism. We already are spirit baptized, each one of us, if we confess Jesus is Lord truly. Anybody tells you different, you send them to me. Verse 14, even so, the body, the human body, is not made up of one part, but of many. And then to illustrate this comically, Paul personifies the foot and the ear as if they could think for themselves. Verse 15, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So transparently, all the body parts are needed. It would not do for the human body to be nothing but one giant eyeball oozing around. Every part is interdependent. Each part of the body is important for the whole body to be healthy and to function optimally. Verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the human body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As, as, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. No, that would be preposterous. All the various human body parts work together for the sake of the whole body. Verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. The body parts that are weaker, less honorable, and unpresentable those are probably the sexual organs. And even though we don't display our private parts to others, yet they are indispensable. And we treat them with greater honor by treating them with greater modesty. Beloved, what's occurring here is an inversion. It's obvious that in a human body, no part is autonomous. But Paul uses his body analogy to turn 
the self-centered vanity of those with certain electrifying and exciting giftings in the church upside down. Paul says it's the unpresentable parts that are indispensable, and they receive special treatment. The weaker and superior human body parts are only apparently so, seemingly so. And appearances are deceiving. In the same manner, the people in the church with deceptively ordinary and unprestigious gifts are as necessary for the proper functioning of the assembly of God as those who put on a more glittery display. Verse 24b, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that negatively there should be no division in the body, but positively that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And then to illustrate that second positive purpose, verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Whether an arm is broken or a tooth aches or an ankle is sprained or the lower back is sore or our head aches, that injury affects the entire body, not just one isolated part. 26b, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it, not just that isolated part. Whether people honor someone for his voice or her brain, they the, their praise honors the whole person, right? I'm a, I, have, I have very minimal interaction with Instagram. I follow my wife, Jill, who posts once every 10 years, and uh, New City Baptist Church. And, uh, but I, I must have looked at a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger at some point in the past because I am just now inundated with all these portraits of this bodybuilder from the 70s, and uh, it's just nonstop now. And uh, I, I got to say, though, that guy was ripped um, it's just, his muscles are amazing, but I've never once thought, wow, what a great job those biceps did pumping all of that iron. What I always think is, wow, what amazing biceps. Arnold is the man. What dedication, what great pecs Arnold Schwarzenegger has, what great biceps Arnold Schwarzenegger has. His body is perfection. If you go for that kind of thing, but Praise honors the whole person, right? It's not just an isolated body part. And now Paul explicitly specifies what this extended analogy illustrates. He's, he's been building everything up to this point, verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Therefore... A member of New City must never think that he or she is less important than their brothers or sisters due to the seemingly ordinary, the unprestigious spiritual gifts the Spirit has sovereignly de determined to distribute to them. In the same way, we must not revere a fellow member as most important as the MVP of New City Baptist Church. Oh, that person with their gifting is indispensable. Our church would grind to a miserable halt without them. No. That, that's our vision being entranced with Arnold's biceps. But this text also needs to steer us away from pride. A member of New City must never think that he or she is more important than a fellow member because of what spiritual gifts the Spirit has sovereignly chosen to distribute to them to edify the church. I say this tongue-in-cheek, all right, but folks, it's just a plain fact. I'm a, I am a very gifted man, uh, and I have the gift of teaching like nobody's business. The mysteries of the scriptures just fall open like the petals of a flower every time I get behind this pulpit, and I'm very generous with my money, and I set a standard of sacrifice and stewardship that, frankly, Others in the church would do well to follow. I serve diligently. I'm always the first to volunteer. I fast twice a week. I take Martha Stewart to school when it comes to hospitality. And I pray faithfully and fervently more than any other person in this church. Of course, <laughs> uh, those aren't things that ever be so crass as to say out loud. But I know it's true. And I secretly hope that others in this church know it as well. And I feel this makes me distinct in a qualitative sense. I am set apart. 
from my brothers and sisters at New City Baptist Church. Oh, that is sin. That is disgusting, disgusting pride. And both patterns of thinking, lowliness and pride, are unbiblical. In the world, there's always a pecking order. And everyone knows where everybody else stands. That's just how the world works. But not the body of Christ. There is no pecking order. Application B. Christian, value the spiritual gifts the Spirit distributes to you and your fellow church members. New citizen, God wants you to look around this room at your fellow church members and exult in the rich, rich diversity of the grace gifts the Spirit has distributed to the body of Jesus Christ. Praise God. We're not competing against one another. We're not individual athletes here, right? We're a team, and a team must work together. Each individual member of New City is like one instrument in an orchestra. One instrument by itself cannot produce a majestic symphony. To use Paul's analogy, we're part of an organic body. If our fingers could talk, they might tell us how grateful they are for our legs and our feet and for the fact that we don't have to walk on our hands. If our toes could talk, they might tell us how grateful they are for our fingers and for the fact that we don't have to eat or write or carry objects with our toes. When we think of our own physical bodies, we don't think of its parts competing against each other. We want our entire body to function optimally. When a tooth hurts, the whole body suffers. And our ear does not think, ha ha, I never liked that tooth anyway. I hope it rots and causes loads of pain. A body wants every body part to flourish for the sake of the whole. And this is how it should be with the body of Jesus Christ, the church. And God has poured out a rich diversity of good gifts upon his church. Verse 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And that listing is chronological. God first appointed apostles, then he appointed prophets at Pentecost, then he appointed teachers. To rank the gifts in order of importance at this point would be to contradict everything Paul's just gone through. Then miracles and gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. And the main purpose of this list is to lead up to the concluding rhetorical questions whose form in Greek indicates that Paul expects, expects a firm negative after each one. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Not every individual member of the body of Christ is an apostle or a prophet or a teacher. Not every individual member of the body of Christ works miracles or possesses gifts of healing or speaks with tongues or interpret tongues. All Christians receive some gifts, but no Christian receives them all. Therefore, with a flourish of trumpets and banging of cymbals, therefore, fellow church members need each other to function in a healthy way. Oh, brothers and sisters, how different the Christian life would be for some if they truly believe that. If they truly believed, I need you. And you need me. And we all need Armando. And we all need Cindy. Fellow church members need each other to function in a healthy way. So let me close today's message with a promise. A promise I borrowed from a book entitled Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. I love that subtitle. Christian, I promise that if you, number one, 
show up consistently. And at this church, that means the 10.30 a.m. corporate worship on Sunday morning and our 7.30 prayer meeting on Thursday evenings. And second, if you seek to care for others, to serve them in love, then I promise that you will get everything you want out of New City. That could be spiritual growth, could be friendships, biblical knowledge, or practical help. You will get whatever you want from the church by fulfilling just those two simple tasks. Show up consistently, week after week after week. Care for others, serve others in love. Now, if you don't participate regularly, you won't get the formative experience of church. You won't grow in biblical knowledge through the teaching or in relational depth through praying with others. And if you don't seek the good of others, then you'll learn to judge the church for how it fails to meet your needs and how others fail to reach out to you. So, show up consistently and ask others how you can help. Remember, you are a part of the body of Jesus Christ. You might be a hand or an eye or an ear. Whatever the appendage, you are essential. Your giftings are essential. And the whole body of New City Baptist Church cannot function properly without you. And you yourself need the body of Christ. To show, so show up and ask around. Look for ways to serve others in love. Other Christians need you more than you can realize. And you need us too. Amen.